You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Catherine Wu, and this week our story is about pushing past big obstacles in science. This is a topic near and dear to my heart because, and I will be the first one to admit this, I'm a pretty stubborn person. I like to think it's part of what makes me good at my day job and part of what makes me a good and sometimes very exasperating spouse. It's also probably the main reason I decided kind of stupidly to sign up for a 30-mile trail race a few years ago in the mountains of Vermont. A good friend convinced me to run and I figured, sure, why not? The problem was there were only about 15 other people running this very, very poorly marked race, and pretty much all of them, including my friend, were faster than me. About an hour into the race, I found myself running alone, totally unsure of whether I was still on the right path. I ended up taking three wrong turns, I lost both my shoes, twice, and I ran two extra miles, which when you're already running 30, is just not what you want to be doing. And by the time I reached the finish line, pretty much every nook and cranny on the surface of my body was filled with sweat, dirt, and rocks. My main consolation? The race was so badly marked that five other people got lost. And my friend who had convinced me to run in the first place? He didn't run two extra miles. He ran five. I can't comment on whether our storyteller this week has ever run a race quite like that, but I do get the sense that she has the tenacity to even if I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. This week, our story is from Mariah Wilson. It was recorded at QED Astoria in Queens, New York in November 2022. The theme that night was persistence. So there I was, deep in the jungles of the Congo Basin, searching for an animal that was proving to be very elusive, an elephant. I was there making a documentary about forest elephant conservation. Now, forest elephants are one of the two elephant species that you find in Africa. The one you guys probably know about is a savanna elephant. They're kind of the iconic one that's out in the open grasslands and plains of Africa. But forest elephants, they're the underdog. And so I really kind of took a liking to them. They're what's known as a keystone species, which means that they're really integral to the ecosystem that they exist in. They're actually known as the gardeners of the forest because they'll eat plants and seeds and then walk a bunch of miles and then poop them out, thereby dispersing the seeds all around the forest ecosystem and helping to build more forest. So think of it as like forest architecture via defecation. It's a kind of weird skill set. 
So I was embarking on this adventure with my cinematographer, Zeb. And he and I had heard of one other project that was concentrating on filming forest elephants. And they unfortunately had kind of gotten the jump on us. And they were filming at the one clearing where you can like definitely see these guys. Uh, it's like the Grand Central for forest elephants. So since they were already there, we figured, you know what? Probably better to not step on their toes. Let's find somewhere else to film. Um, I remember thinking to myself, how hard can it be? I mean, they're freaking elephants. They're huge. <laughs> Famous last words. So our first location we filmed in was in Cameroon, where we were filming with this amazing eco-guard named Sidoni. And she was one of the first female eco-guards in Cameroon. And her job is to patrol the forest, looking for poachers and protecting the animals that are there. And so we get there and immediately realize this is a really hard environment to work in. We're marching out behind her and her colleagues 12 miles and they're macheting their way through the bush, just like carving a path that doesn't really exist. And it's hot and humid and there are bugs everywhere. So we get to the clearings, we drop off our gear and we set up our cameras and we're like, thank God we made it. Here we go. And the waiting game begins and we're waiting and waiting and we don't see a single forest elephant for days. And we see signs of them everywhere. We see their tracks. We see their their scat. We see we even hear them one night. You know, it's like they're kind of just toying with our emotions a little. But no, no in the clearings, no forest elephants are coming out. So we talked to the eco guards and they're like, yeah, you know, the, the poaching pressure has been really high here for a while. So their population has plummeted and the ones that are still there are scared to come out. And I thought about this and it made me really sad because this means this home that they've created, that they've helped build, they're scared about coming out into their own home because of what us humans are doing. And I was like, you know what? Let's give it a few more days. I really want to try to film these guys. But the problem was at this point, Zeb and I had kind of run out of water that we had brought out, potable water. And so we were resorting to filling our water jugs with muddy river water and throwing iodine tablets in and kind of like crossing our fingers, hoping for the best. <laughs> Inevitably, we both got a bit of the grumble tummy, as I like to call it. And, um, and I was sneaking off to do a lot of, um, let's call them shame poops, where <laughs> I would leave as far away as I could go from camp, out of earshot, out of eyeshot, and uh, do my business. And so one night, we're sitting around the campfire after dinner, and I got the, the call to, to go do my thing. And so I went like 40 or 50 feet away from the camp, and all of a sudden, I heard the camp get really quiet. And then I heard the eco guards all whispering to each other. And then I heard guns cocking. And then I heard them say, Seki, Seki, who is it? And for a second, I got so excited because I was like, oh, my God, they caught a poacher. Fuck yeah, that's awesome. We're going to get a great scene. I hope Zeb's rolling on this. And then it occurred to me that I was the poacher that they heard because I was making all this noise out there. I was like, no, 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 c'est moi, c'est moi, don't shoot, don't shoot. And then I slunk back to camp really embarrassed. And they're like, next time, just tell us what you're doing. So we hadn't seen any elephants, but we were seeing a lot of other species. The one that was the mo most pervasive was a fly, just regular flies. They were everywhere. You don't think about flies when you're in the forest, but they just absolutely swarm your camp. 
And the tent that Zeb and I were sharing was especially attractive to them. Like, I think that was the reason they gave us that tent, honestly, because those flies were just on it. And then we look closer and we're like, they're on top of each other in threes and fours and twos and they're coupling up and they, oh my God, these flies are fucking. (laughs) They're having like an orgy on our tent. Our tent was a fly fuck pad and we had not consented to any of this at all. (laughs) So then we look closer and we see this white stuff that they're leaving behind. And I'm like, is this some kind of weird fly jizz? Like what is happening here? And then upon closer examination, no, it was just a bunch of baby maggots everywhere on our gear, on our tent. And so we took all our stuff down to the river, washed it off. But there was one bag in particular that was very meshy and they'd really just burrowed in there and we just couldn't get them out. So we smoked them out over the fire, neglecting to realize it was the same fire we were smoking fish on for dinner. So that bag ended up smelling like smoke fish forever. Like when we were walking through the forest, it was like a gigantic vengeful herring was just stalking us. But honestly, it wasn't all bad. Like, there were magical moments, too, while we were waiting to film these guys. Like, sitting around the campfire with the eco-guards and and learning about them and learning about their passion for protecting animals like the forest elephant was amazing and inspiring. And for me, my favorite moment of every day was when I walked down to the river to bathe at the end of a long, hot, humid day. And I would do it right when the sun was going down and the forest was kind of lighting up and these fireflies were all around me. And it was, it was magical and ethereal. And one night, a firefly even tried to mate with my headlamp, which was so cute and so much better than the sex flies on my tent. 100%. But unfortunately, at this point, we still hadn't filmed a single damn elephant. So we decided to make a move. And we went to a neighboring country, Congo, Brazzaville. And we met up with a biologist named Clement, and he actually studies the forest elephants' language and communication. So he records them and then analyzes their vocalizations to figure out what they're saying to each other. And he has these observation decks that he's built that are about 30 uh, feet high. And on top, there's a 10 by 10 space where four of us adult-sized humans kind of squeezed in Tetris style with our sleeping bags. Like just, it was, it was a bit of a tight, awkward squeeze, but we made it happen. And we set up our camera gear and we had an infrared camera with us this time. And we again played the waiting game for days and days. And at this point, I'm just like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. This project that I'm, I'm doing and the story I want to tell, I don't know if it can happen if we don't get original footage of forest elephants. So I'm pretty stressed out. And that night I remember saying, I will do anything to see a forest elephant. Well, the next day I kind of got my wish, but in a sad way, because we did find a forest elephant, but it was dead. It was a young male and his body was rotting into the forest floor And you could see on his face the machete marks where his tusks had been chopped off by poachers. And seeing this carcass and and seeing it return to where it came from and this young elephant's life cut short, it made me realize, you know, I really do need to tell this story. I need to raise awareness about this, this underdog species that I love. So with that renewed vigor, I climbed up to the observation tower that night And we went to sleep 
And in the middle of the night, we woke up to the sound of splashing. And we couldn't see what was happening because it was pitch black. But Zeb very quietly got up and turned on the cameras and turned on the infrared light. And I still couldn't see anything because it infrared. But he could see. And I just felt him lean over and tap me on the forearm, really excited. Just tap, 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 tap. And I was like, we got him. And then once I looked through the camera, it was amazing. It was a whole family. It was a matriarch. It was her kids. It was their kids. It was elephant behavior. They're bathing, they're drinking and dunking and interacting with each other. And we even got a tiny baby elephant breastfeeding, suckling on its mom. And I was honestly really relieved that it was dark out because I just started crying. I was so grateful to be in the space with these beautiful animals and so relieved that we had finally been able to get footage of them. So we made the film. And in hindsight, it's not a big surprise that we had so much trouble filming them. Forest elephants are in really big trouble. They are listed as critically endangered, and they've lost about 60% of their population in just 10 years, which you don't have to be a math genius to figure that out. You know, the trajectory is not good. So doing this film made me realize that not only do I want to spend the rest of my career focusing on underreported species, but I want to focus on the people like Clement and Sidonie who are doing everything they can to protect them because, frankly, all endangered species need all the help we can give them now. Thank you. That was Mariah Wilson. Mariah Wilson is a documentary producer and director with a focus on wildlife conservation whose work has taken her to six continents. Her 2019 feature documentary, Silent Forests, is about the fight to save forest elephants from ivory trafficking in Africa's Congo Basin. All right, before we continue with today's episode and a deeper dive into the science of Mariah's story, a couple of reminders. We have shows coming up in Boise, St. Louis, Sacramento, Dallas, and more. Get your tickets and find out more at storycollider.org shows. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online. And for more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens, and to whom it belongs, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. And if you're tired of listening to ads on the podcast, you can also sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash the story collider. Our Patreon supporters receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now we're back with Mariah to catch up a little bit about more of the science in her story. Mariah, thank you so much for joining us. To start us off, tell us a little bit more about forest elephants. How are they different from savanna elephants? Forest elephants are really fantastic and they are different from savanna elephants in that if you think about savanna elephants, they're in these wide open plains and they have a lot of area to graze. So their tusks are actually pointed a bit more up and outward. Um, But forest elephants have to be in these small, very dense ecosystems with tons of trees and thick vegetation. So their tusks point straight down so they don't get their tusks tangled up in different branches and brambles and everything else. Um, And they're a bit smaller as well. I mean, they're still big, but they weigh less than savanna elephants do. Um, And that allows them to kind of navigate through that forest ecosystem better. So they are the savanna elephants packaged into a smaller space, basically. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And they help to actually build that ecosystem out. Like they are, they're great at, you know, eating leaves and seeds, and then they walk and defecate and they disperse the seeds all around the forest to help to plant new trees. And there's actually some recent studies that show that the way that they eat and what they eat helps to promote carbon dense wood stocks. So they actually help Mm. to retain carbon uh, in the forest. And so thereby they help us out a little bit with climate change. Amazing. Uh, And one thing I thought I'd bring up that I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, forest and savanna elephants have in common. They both live in these amazing matriarchal societies where the ladies are in charge. What is up with that? And how unusual is that? That's right. It's wonderful. Yeah, they have really strong matriarchal societies. And the matriarch is just a uh, retains all this knowledge about the ecosystem that she passes down to her children and her children's children, like where's the best watering hole, where's the yummiest tree to eat. And so they, that's why like poaching problems are so heartbreaking because sometimes the bigger elephants like the matriarchs are taken out and then you have that loss of that institutional knowledge. Um, so the way their societies are structured is the matriarchs, will stay together. So the daughters will stay with the family and they'll have babies. But if the babies are boys, eventually when they reach um, puberty, when they start to go into must, it's called, they will kind of go off on their own and leave the herd. But the females will stay and uh, they they make a family. 
Um, interestingly, the males, when they go into what's called must, they actually have a hormone that <laughs> leaks down from their temporal lobe. So oh. you can tell when a male's in heat, it looks like he's crying out of the side of his head. It's really wild. <laughs> and they are very aggressive during this time. So if you see an elephant with some wetness on the side of its head, as long as it's not from the rain, then uh, the advice would be to clear away and give it some space to do its thing. <laughs> and you told me just in time. <laughs> so, I mean, one thing that you have already alluded to and is a such a big central part of your story is that, you know, obviously forest elephant populations have really been plummeting in recent years. Tell us a little bit about that and what's going on with poaching in that region. Yeah, I mean, it's what kind of got me interested in this project and embarking on this story in the first place was that I read a study and the study was already many years ago now, but that um, by best estimates, and it is tricky to figure out the population just given how hard it is to see the forest elephants. They do this based on scat and other kinds of data, but the best estimates show that in about 10 years, over 60% of the forest elephant population was lost in Central mm -hmm. Africa, which is an absolutely staggering number. And so estimates nowadays have their population at around 40,000, whereas 20 years ago, it was 200,000. So that precipitous drop is really scary. And it's what made me you know, d decide and be motivated to tell their story because I felt like, you know, everybody's doing films about poaching and, and the ivory trade with savanna elephants, but these forest elephants are really getting hit hard. And um, the, the bittersweet thing is that because of the forest they live in, as their numbers get lower from poaching, they're going to be harder to find to poach. So there might be like a little bit of stabilization happening now. But I can't say I know exactly what the current number is, and no one can, because there isn't uh, enough data on how many still exist. But the situation is not particularly good. Are they targeted more often than savanna elephants? Yeah, in a way. I mean, I think if you were to look at the numbers of elephants poached, it may be that more savanna elephants have been killed for their ivory just because there were more of them to start with at the beginning of this, let's say the modern poaching trend, which mm -hmm. kind of started its uptick after um, uh, in the late aughts and the early teens. And, um, but the forest elephants are in a lot of countries that have poor resources for conservation and less regulation as a result. So they're an easier target in some ways. I think a lot of the Countries in the continent that have savanna elephants have a little more conservation and protection infrastructure for the elephants. Um, the other twist is that the forest elephant ivory is prized a little bit more on the market for people mm. who buy such things because it's denser because they have to use it to like knock trees down and and such. And so it has like a different um, quality to it that's that's prized more on the on the market, sadly. Wow. Okay. But you had the good fortune of working with EcoGuards who are doing this really important work of protecting these species. Tell us a little bit more about their job and what it was like to partner up with these amazing people. Yeah, that was wonderful. It was um, 
So I filmed with uh, one of the first female eco guards in Cameroon. Her name was Sidonie. And she was just uh, such an inspiration because she's, you know, a mom. She has several kids that she has to spend long times away from. And she goes out in these very dense, difficult environments to navigate. I mean, I think of myself as a fairly outdoorsy person, but I struggled to keep up with her in the jungle. You just have thorns and vines just grabbing onto you. You feel like the forest is trying to like take a piece of you and leave it behind, you know, you cuts and bruises and scrapes and, and it's humid and hot. And this is her office. This is just mm. where she works every single day. And I was just so amazed by her and all the other eco guards and how much hard work they do for very, very little. Um, and their main job is to patrol the forest looking for poachers, but also to observe the animals. And so they can take notes on how many elephants they're seeing and where they're seeing them and just kind of they are the, the front lines for um, the observational data of what animals are out there and still exist in these clearings that have been targeted. So it was um, it was amazing to spend time with them. And I appreciate all the hard work they do. And I do not think I could do it myself, but it was it was nice to have a, a peek into that world for a period of time. Yeah. Yeah, and you were able to capture some of that work on film and, of course, some of these amazing elephants on film. What role do you see your documentaries playing in conservation and, you know, the sort of bigger impact they're having for people who can't be there in person? Yeah, good question. I mean, every wildlife conservation filmmaker, I think we want to reach um, an audience that's beyond just preaching to the crowd. So beyond just talking to the people who are already like, yeah, we should help protect these vital megafauna more. We should help protect the biodiversity in these regions more. Um, I mean, one goal would be to motivate people to help donate to mm-hmm. various organizations like the EcoGuards, like the biologist I was filming with who's doing amazing work too. But I think beyond that, we always have that hope that our film will reach a wider audience, um, especially in the countries where we're filming. And then that can help both motivate people to protect the species that are in their own backyards, which many of them do, but also help uh, inspire another generation of the next eco guards and the next protectors of wildlife. Because the most important audience is, of course, the people who are by um, these national parks and these ecosystems in Africa, which is why I really want to focus on the the people from these countries, from Cameroon and Congo Brazzaville, and celebrate what they're doing to help protect uh, forest elephants. Yeah, that's amazing. What are you working on now? So I worked on a project that just released recently. Um, My friends were directing it. I was a co-producer. It was called Wildcat, and it came out on uh, Amazon a couple months ago. And it was about a veteran with PTSD who gets involved in rewilding orphaned ocelots um, with an American biologist who runs this amazing wildlife rescue organization down there. So that was a absolutely wonderful project to be part of great team of filmmakers and and beautiful wild cats um so that kind of continued in the vein of my conservation work and um yeah i'm always like looking to develop and 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 pursue different stories having to do with wildlife conservation and and animals in general so i have a couple other things cooking too 
Uh, that's amazing because I just saw that pop up in I think my Netflix feed this morning and I was like, oh, Ocelots, I'm clearly watching this very soon. <laughs> so I'm very excited to hear you were a part of that. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that is all the questions we have time for, but thank you so much for joining us. This was so enlightening and I'm glad we got to talk about multiple different conservation efforts on this. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was great to talk a little bit more about forest elephants. I always love talking about them. The Story Collider is so grateful to Mariah for sharing her story and her science with us. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from managing producer Misha Gajewski and senior podcast editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, education director Lily B, and operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The story featured in today's episode was produced by Tracy Sagara and Tracy Rowland. Our theme music is by Ghost. Next week, Misha Gajewski will be back with stories about observations and noticing those small details. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Catherine Wu.